pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, and as we just sang, we ask, Lord, that you would haste the day when our faith will be sight. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and for Jesus coming, living a perfect life, dying a horrible death on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for conquering death by rising again. And Lord, we just ask this morning that you would use your word to work in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would help us to see your word in a fresh light, understanding what you are doing in this world, this world which is sinful and messy, how you are working your will and drawing people to yourself. Father, I pray that you would use the words that I speak, that you would use me as a vessel to speak and preach your word. I pray that it would be clear. I pray that it would be free from distraction. And Lord, we look forward to uh, what we're going to hear now from your word, and we look forward to how you're going to work in each one of our hearts. Father, please change us. Change us to be more like your son as a result of what we hear from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Been looking forward to this opportunity to be able to uh, preach. And uh, obviously I'm not Pastor Lou. Um, and uh, I pray that it won't be a distraction that I'm, I'm up here this morning. I pray that you'll just receive and hear the words, um, not because they're coming from me, but because they're coming from the Word of God. And I want to start out by asking a question of all of us this morning. Have you come here this morning uh, feeling like a failure? Have you, in the past week, felt like a failure? Maybe you've come here this morning wanting to give up. Give up on Christianity. Give up on just like trying. Life is heavy. Life struggles are really, really heavy. Maybe you've come here this morning and maybe you feel you're a parent and you feel like your parenting is just not measuring up. Maybe you've come here and your marriage just isn't in a real great place. Maybe you're in high school or middle school or college and you're just working really hard You're trying to make good relationships, and things just aren't going real well for you. Things that we just try harder and harder at, they just don't seem to be measuring up with what the standard maybe we've set for ourselves, or the standard that we see the high standard of God's holiness as set forth in Scripture. And we're going to enter this passage here this morning and I want you to kind of like just take a moment and, and kind of sit and think about just kind of where you're at right now in life. Where are you struggling? Where are you 
failing and not measuring up. And I pray that the words of Scripture this morning will take you from a place of being burdened by that, by having that burden on your shoulders that just won't seem to come off, and bring you to a place where you are effective, in a place of more effectiveness for the Lord, and a place of greater joy and hope in your lives. So, um, as Chris mentioned, we're going to be, the passage this morning is Acts 12 and 13, Um, but uh, one of the because this is kind of like a one-off sermon, it, I'm going to pick up in the middle of a passage. And so I don't want to pick up just in the middle of something and assume that everybody here understands what's gone on prior to this. So I actually want to start back in Matthew chapter 28. So if you'll turn with me in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses um, 18 through 20. And what's happening here, this is at the very, obviously the very end of the book of Matthew. Christ's crucifixion has happened. He died. He rose again. And he came back. And this is when he came back and shortly before he ascended back into heaven. And it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Well, I, I, I like to say, This passage right here, when it says, go therefore, this is assuming that you've gone. So this is having gone, and the main thrust here of this passage is make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I want you to turn over to Acts 1. Because Acts 1 picks up at this very same point that Matthew 28 closes out with. Acts 1 says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. So, um... Uh, after he through the Holy Spirit had, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs. So this is, again, this is shortly before he was taken up, the ascension. This is after he rose from the dead. He came back and he uh, spent a period of time with people uh, telling about his resurrection and um, giving proof that he was the risen king and messiah. And it says, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Acts 1.4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit comes then, and that's when we have the... uh, uh, the beginning of the church. It says in verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And, and I want uh, to read this verse 8 and really think about this in the context of Matthew 28, of what Christ said, 
And now this is in the book of Acts. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's happening here in the book of Acts and where we're going to pick up? In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, you have um, the, uh, the book, let me say this first, the book of Acts covers about the first three decades of the first 30 years of the church, okay? And the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts primarily focuses on Peter's ministry and carrying out in the, the start of the church at Jerusalem, and then at um, the passage that we're going to pick up here now is really a shift in the book. Going from chapter 12 to chapter 13 um, goes from um, focusing on Peter's ministry uh, to focusing on Paul's ministry. Peter's ministry was primarily to the Jewish world. The shift to Paul is Paul's ministry is now going to focus on the uh, Gentile world the, um, in Rome. And you see from verse 8 in chapter 1, where it says, um, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And really, the whole book of Acts is really, uh, is really a personification of what is happening in this one verse. You have Peter started out in Jerusalem, and then the spread of the gospel goes to the whole world, um, going to the Gentile world as well. So I wanted to give that context before we pick up now in Acts chapter 12. If you'll turn with me now to Acts chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 20, Acts 12, 25 through 13, 13. But I'm going to skip a few sections because I want you to get the gist of what's going on here. But really the content of this sermon is um, going to be focused on a few verses within this passage. Some of the reasons I'm skipping some of this too is it's just a lot of names <laughs> And I don't want that to be a distraction. To be a distraction, like, did he say that right? Um, and so I'm going to skip over a few portions here. So we pick this up now in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Again, this is a transition to a focus on Paul's ministry throughout the rest of the book. It says, "And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them." And I want you to remember this name. They took with them who? John, whose surname was Mark. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to be talking a lot about John Mark today. Sometimes I might call him uh, Mark, sometimes I might call him John Mark, but um, either way I mean the same person. It says there in uh, chapter 13, verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, so the first place that Paul really goes to that they focus on here is the church at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then I, I'm just going to focus on verse 2 there, Barnabas, and then it closes at the end, Saul. Uh, Saul is uh, another name for Paul. Uh, Saul, is, uh, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is, um, I'm sorry, yeah, Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Roman name. So you're going to see at different times he's going to be called different things. Verse 3. I'm, I'm sorry, that was verse 1, uh, verse 2. And I, I read this, and I, what I want you to focus on here is just um, God is doing amazing things in his church. God is using these men to do amazing things in the furtherance of his gospel in the church. 
And uh, don't get too bogged down right now by the exact things that are happening. I want you just to understand this in the context of what God is doing to build his kingdom and, um, and further his church. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he's setting them apart for the work of the ministry. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had also John as their assistant. Remember that. So John, uh, Paul Paul and Barnabas, were going together in ministry. They were working together hand in hand. And they had John Mark as their assistant to help them. And then uh, verses 6 through 8 give more of a scenario about what was going on here um, in the church there. And it says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, this is verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and fraud, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the ways of the Lord? So there was this sorcerer, and he was really rebuking the sorcery that was happening um, here. And um, I want you to jump down to verse 11. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. God for a time allowed these men to do amazing things to prove um, that Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ stood for was, was real and was effective. And immediately a dark mist fall on, fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now go to verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, what happened? They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Let me read that again. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Um, We read first in verse 5 that Mark was an, uh, an assistant to Paul, and Barna, uh, to Paul and Barnabas. So he was, he was effectively helping them in the ministry that they were doing in the furtherance of the kingdom, in the spread of the word, in the church. And then for whatever reason, we, we aren't given why Mark left the ministry, but Mark left. And I think it's instructive to us that we aren't given a reason for why he left the ministry at that time and he, he really deserted them. Why do I think that's instructive? I think it's instructive because I think there are times where God leaves things kind of vague in his words so that we can fill in our own situation, our own circumstance into the situation so it's not just about this one thing, but it's about, it could be about a variety of things that, we, that have us down and have us, um, that have us discouraged and that we can understand this in the context of what God is doing in our lives. So what was it? Could it have been homesickness? Could have been. Could it have been fear of danger? Paul and Barnabas were doing a lot of dangerous things. They were being threatened to be killed. 
And maybe, maybe it was fearfulness that caused him to turn around and go home. Was it apprehension and ministering to the Gentile world? This was a new thing. A lot of the ministry that had taken place at this point was just to the Jewish world, and this was expanding to a whole new group of people that, um, that you know, um, this was a new thing of what was happening in, in the economy of what, what God was doing in the world. Whatever it might be, I want you to kind of think about what you're struggling with right now and what has you down and what has you burdened right now. Mark went to the place of giving up. Maybe you have given up. And what I want us to see now is um, what happens now in Mark's life, I think, is very instructive for us in terms of how we um, can and should be responding to life and its circumstances. And I want us to turn now to Acts chapter 15 because... I don't know exactly how long of a period of time this was between Acts 13 and Acts 15. But there was a period of time, and something happened during that period of time where Mark was ready to uh, go on these missionary journeys again. And we pick this up in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And this is actually... We're going to read this in a second, and you're going to be like, why, why is he saying this? But this is actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I'm going to explain why in just a little bit. So Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are, they are doing. So Paul and Barnabas are still this uh, a companion with each other in terms of ministry and what God is doing in the world and building his church. And Paul says, come on, Barnabas, let's go back. Let's go back to every city we've been to and let's uh, see how they're doing, see how they're doing in the Lord. And what happens here? Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Whoa, 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 whoa. He deserted the ministry. Just I, maybe a couple years earlier. And he's going to try to now, and now Barnabas wants to take him with them after he deserted the ministry? What does it say here? But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Uh-oh. Paul and Barnabas are having a conflict here, aren't they? Barnabas wants to take Mark with him, and Paul's like, no way. He's just going to, I can imagine what he'd be saying right now. He, he deserted us, and now you want to take him with us? Like, we're going to be facing the same trials we were facing before. We're going to be facing the same, uh, the same uh, people and the same situations. So what's different this time? At this point, as you're thinking through this here, um, I want you to think about, like, how are, you, how are you thinking about Paul and Barnabas right now? The, the rest of the book of, book of Acts focuses on Paul's ministry. And right now, uh, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, Paul, like, give the guy a chance, right? Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. 
So because they didn't take Mark with them, Paul and Barnabas actually split from each other. And right about this point, because we, um, Paul and Barnabas don't know the future of what was going ha- to happen, I'm sure they're probably thinking, other people that maybe they got counsel from are probably thinking, like, these guys, these were like the perfect duo. This was like, I don't know, like Batman and Robin, you know? <laughs> this was the duo that was doing amazing things. And they had such a sharp, sharp contention about whether or not they were going to take Mark with them that they divided and went their separate ways. This could have been a disaster. Let's continue to read on here. And so what happened? They departed from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And really it picks up then in chapter 16 and focuses on Paul and Silas. So what happened here? We know the conclusion of their story, right? That Barnabas took with him Mark. Paul took with him Silas. I I have a son whose name is Silas because of uh, what a companion Silas was to Paul after this sharp contention happened. Was anybody in sin? Maybe. Was it a messy situation? Yes. Was there probably fear on their parts and fear on the parts of people who knew about the situation that probably made people feel like this is going to have a drastic effect on the furtherance of the gospel through the, through the church? Is this going to cause the church to dissolve? But what did God do? What did God do? God took a messy, possibly even sinful situation in terms of two people not being able to get along, and God multiplied ministry because of it. The gospel was furthered because of a, of a schism that God allowed between Paul and Barnabas, that God allowed between two of his faithful servants. He allowed ministry to be multiplied. What is the big picture here? The big picture here is that God used... Imagine, imagine if Mark would have never deserted the ministry. Just want to play this out a little bit here. Imagine if Paul and Barnabas and Mark remained this trio going throughout all the world, preaching the gospel, being part of God's work in furthering his kingdom. And this Acts 15 story would have never happened, and the schism would have never happened. Think about all that Barnabas and Mark were accomplished simply because God allowed the messiness of life, the messiness of Mark's situation, the messiness of the schism between 
Paul and Barnabas to bring about the greater furthering of his work in the world and in the furtherance of building his kingdom. This reminds me of a few things. I think right now about um, one of the most important books uh, outside of Scripture that um, I've read that have been impactful on me in particular is a book that was written back in the 1990s. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. It's written by, uh, some of you may know, missionary Jim Elliott. Uh, His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, wrote this book. And Through Gates of Splendor, what it tells about is it tells about the awful, gruesome thing that happened to five missionaries who went to minister to the Aka Indians. And some of you may know the story. What happened? They went down there to minister to the Aka Indians who knew nothing of the true and living God. And before they even really got started in what they were doing in the ministry that they were trying to carry out, what happened? They encountered, these five men encountered the Aka Indians, and they were murdered. This was back in the 1950s. A horrible, gruesome, awful thing where we would think that God, like the Aka Indians, are never going to hear about the gospel now. What is God doing? What is God allowing in this? This book, which was written back in 1996, or in the late 1990s, I want to read something that Elizabeth Elliot wrote which I think very instructive for what we're talking about here today. She says, for us widows, the question as to why the men who had trusted God to be both shield and defender should be allowed to be speared to death was not one that could be smoothly or finally answered in 1956. Do you think that this was something that was easy or probably even to the end easy for something for Elizabeth Elliot or the wives of these other men to accept and to be okay with? No. It was messy. It was awful. It was murder. But she goes on to say, not yet silenced in 1996. So let me read that all together. For us widows, the question as to why the men who had trusted God to be both shield and defender should be allowed to be speared to death was not one that could be smoothly or finally answered in 1956, not yet silenced in 1996. What went on to happen? The gospel that these five martyred missionaries once desired to bring to the Aka Indians eventually flourished among the Aka Indians and around the world. Hundreds, I would say probably thousands of people have been so affected by the story of what these five men set out to do that hundreds, maybe even thousands, have accepted Christ as a result of this horrible situation that happened. I myself have been a product of, after having read this book, just telling God, God, I want you to use me in whatever way you want to use me. Because if these men can do something like this, and you can make something amazing come out of it like the way that you have, just please use me. God used 
a really horrible, sinful circumstance to bring about the greater furtherance of his gospel in the world. The story of Jim Elliott and his colleagues being martyred is one example of God using really negative and bad circumstances to further his kingdom. But I want to bring us to what the greatest example of this is. What is it? The crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was murdered. He was murdered unjustly. Murder, murder is sin. Murder, murder is obviously wrong. He was murdered at the hands of people who deserved to be in his place. People like you and me. crucifixion of Jesus, which was the most horrific event in the history of mankind. Somebody who, the only person in the entire world who didn't deserve to die, died and was murdered. Why? For us. So that we could be accepted with God. In this circumstance too, what did God do? God used Awful circumstances. God used sinful circumstances. God used a really, really, really tough and bad situation. And he redeemed it. And he brought greater furtherance of the gospel and furtherance of the kingdom as a result of what happened ultimately in the crucifixion. So what do, we, what do we take from this? God often furthers his gospel and ministry as a result of seemingly bad or even sinful circumstances. So where does this come, where does this meet us? Suppose right now that you feel as though you failed God and can never be useful to him again. Do any of you feel that way? You may feel that there's no possible way for you to be useful to God because of the failures in your life, the failures in my life. Many have failed morally. We've hated people. We've broken God's commands in offensive, awful ways. And we should feel Really, we should feel dirty. We should feel awful. We should feel like we can never be useful to God because that's what we deserve. But can I tell you today, don't give up. Life is messy, and God chooses to use the messiness of each of our lives to do what? To build his kingdom. God looks down at you and the righteousness. And what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus if you've accepted his gift. How does he view you? In the messiness of life that you're in or that you experience? If you are in Christ, 
He views you as a trophy of his grace. And I think it's also instructive that we also never know how the Lord is going to use our past failures in other people's lives. John Mark left the ministry completely for a period of time, and because of this, two missionary, two, two missionary parties evangelized the world instead of just one. God desires to use these mistakes that we've made, the mess of our lives that we may be in, and he wants to use it to further his gospel. Furthermore, all of us who have failed God in one way or another, which is all of us, can use our failures to help others who may be failing in those areas of life. How might God this morning be using you to be a Barnabas in another person's life? What what Paul did in saying not to bring John Mark, Paul was focused on the ministry that had to be accomplished, and he didn't want one person to one person's uh, instability that there may be to be something that was going to hinder what God was doing in the um, furtherance of his church. So I get, I get where Paul was. But in Acts 15, where does my heart go? Where do, what does my heart identify with? I want a Barnabas in my life. How are you going to be a Barnabas in somebody else's life? Somebody whose life is messy and ruined. Barnabas' name means son of consolation or comfort. How might God use us to encourage others to keep pursuing God despite the mess that many of us have found ourselves in? God not only uses circumstances in our lives to lift, lift us up out of our failures, he also uses a godly heritage for others who are struggling to find God and to find stability. I want you to turn uh, back to Acts chapter 12. We're actually introduced to Mark um, because of what was happening in his house. Let's, let me explain by reading... From Acts chapter 12, verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. I don't want to extrapolate too much from this one verse of scripture, but what we do know What was happening at this time? The church. The church was meeting at Mark's mother's house. What were they doing at this point? The church was meeting in Mark's mother's house to pray. To pray for what? To pray for for Peter's imprisonment. Some of us may or may not have a mother or parents who were godly like this. We look too at Acts chapter 15. 
Who was Barnabas? Turn over to uh, Colossians 4.10. So who was Barnabas? It says here, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. With Mark, who is Mark? The cousin of Barnabas. Some of us may or may not have a family member in our lives who has been a type of Barnabas figure for us. Barnabas knew that Mark had failed in ministry yet he still believed that Mark could be effective for the Lord. Barnabas supported Mark to the point that he was willing to part from Paul. Champion of the faith, Paul. He was willing to depart from Paul so that he could uh, welcome Mark back into a place of effective service for the Lord. Mark also had an influential friend and mentor that pointed him in the way of Christ. Who did I say the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, whose ministry did that, does that focus on? Peter. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5.13. Peter here says, um, he's, this is a greetings of people who are greeting. He's, he says halfway through that verse, who greets you? What does he call Mark? My son. We don't have this laid out for sure, but there's speculation that Peter was probably instrumental in Mark's conversion. And then when Mark left the ministry, where was Peter ministering primarily out of? Jerusalem, right? When Mark left the ministry, where did he go back to? Jerusalem. I can only imagine that when Mark went back to Jerusalem and was out of the ministry and was in a bad place for a period of time, It's likely that Peter was instrumental in mentoring Mark during that time to help Mark get back to a place of being restored, of understanding who he is in Christ, and of being able to move forward in an effective way for the Lord. So some of us have a godly heritage, some of us here, have a godly heritage, and some of us don't. That's okay. Whether or not we come from a godly heritage, 
we have the ability to be that godly heritage for those who come after us. Not only our family, but people right here, people that we work with, people that, people that we interact with and that we're friends with. We can be that godly heritage for another person. And it makes me think about a story back in the 1940s. In the 1940s, an atheist living in New Jersey was approached by a believer who was a pastor and invited him to church. This atheist decided to be congenial to the pastor, and he attended church. He returned to church several times and eventually gave his life to Christ. Eventually, this man and his wife, um, after, after the war, had a boy. And as a teenager, this boy called out to God, saying, God, if you're there, please save me. A few years later, as a student at Rutgers University, he ran into a girl before a football game, and she was an unbeliever. Uh, She was visiting from Pennsylvania to see somebody else play in this football game and um, met met this man, and uh, they got to know each other, and eventually this student at Rutgers University led this woman to the Lord, and eventually they got married. This man and his wife had eight children, All eight of these children have given their lives to Jesus and have children, many of whom have given their lives to Jesus. And I say this story because this is my godly heritage. It started with an atheist back in 1940. I'm one of those eight children. And it starts with one person. What does the Lord do and how does the Lord work? The Lord often works his salvation through the witness of family members to their relatives, to their offspring. And this is instructive for us. We have a responsibility. We, each of us here, must be faithful in bringing the light of the gospel to our family members, to our friends, to those that we interact with. Because we are and can be that godly heritage that Mark had. We never know how God may use us to instill a godly heritage for generations to come. We can have godly families just as Mark had a godly family. So God, what is God doing here? God desires that we use our lives to encourage others. Everyone we come into contact with to encourage others in their walks with God. What kind of ministry do you have with family and friends? One application of this, parents. When you go home from church today, what are you going to, when you sit down for lunch, what are you going to ask your kids? What are you going to do? Are you going to try to hurry them along just to, like me, get to the Sunday afternoon nap? (laughs) Or 
Are you going to take some time to ask them, what did they learn today in church? Are you going to take some time to tell them what you learned from God today in church? Instill that godly heritage. Give them an opportunity to be like Mark, to have that godly heritage, to have that support group around them where they can be restored, where one day they, when they go through the trials of life and they struggle, that they can get back to a point because of the support around them, because of the things that they've been taught, they can get back to a place of effectiveness in serving God. Not only does God use seemingly bad circumstances to draw people to himself and build his kingdom, not only does God use a godly heritage to draw people to himself and build his kingdom, God also uses those who finish their life well. I love this. Look at what God does here. Turn back to Colossians 410. This is going back to I went to this passage earlier to talk about how Barnabas was a cousin of Mark. The fact that Paul, in verse 10 here, even mentions Mark is amazing. Why? Because just a couple years earlier, Paul would not even trust Mark to take him with him on a missionary journey. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this even hits, hits home the point even further. This is awesome. Second Timothy four verse eleven it says, "Only Luke is with me." What does Paul say here? Get Mark. Amen. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Paul, who just a few years earlier. He said, I, I'm not going to take him with me because he's too, he's too much of a liability. What does he say? He says, bring him with you because he's profitable. He's useful to me for ministry. See what happened here? God used people around Mark to bring him to a place of effectiveness to the point where he was no longer a liability and no longer viewed that way, but instead viewed the exact opposite of that. 
the irony of this. It's just amazing. What's interesting in this, too, is out of all the people, um, he calls for Mark. Um, and if you look back just a verse earlier in verse 10, it's interesting here because he points out this man named Demas. And what did Demas do? Forsaken. Having loved this present world and departed for Thessalonica. So there's this contrast that happens between verse 10. Demas, who, you know, I don't, Demas, we don't hear a lot more about. But Demas departed. Was Demas ever restored to a place of fruitfulness? Could he have been? Yeah. Did he have the support group? Did he have the people in his life that were influencing him like Mark had? And just this contrast, the irony of in verse 10, Demas forsaking. And then, him, and then Paul saying, bring Mark because he's useful to me for ministry. What an amazing, amazing illustration of restoration, and of redemption. If you'll turn with me over to Philemon's chapter 24. Can anybody tell me what the theme of Philemon is? Restoration, forgiveness. And here I think this, this is, uh, I think irony is the only way I can describe it right now. But uh, Mark is mentioned in the book of Philemon at the end, in the greeting section again. What does it say in verse uh, uh, 23 and 24? Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. So what happened here? He's mentioned in in a book that's all about forgiveness. Mark's name is mentioned once again to Philemon. Why did Paul mention Mark's name to Philemon? Again, we're not exactly told why here, but I can only imagine that Paul tells Philemon about Mark to give Philemon an example of the true forgiveness that transpired between Paul and Mark, the restoration that happened between the two of them and ultimately with God. Paul is showing Philemon that he himself had previously worked through the issue of forgiveness. Ultimately, Paul could identify Mark as a fellow laborer because Paul understood the extent of God's forgiveness of him who was Paul at one time? Before He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of Christians. Of anybody that understood, that had reason to understand the true forgiveness of God, it was Paul, who prior to knowing Christ was a persecutor of Christians himself, but was now 
a trophy of God's grace and forgiveness toward him. And he was able to demonstrate that to Philemon in how he worked things out with Mark. So some of you today may be at a point as we started out where you feel as though even if you were to try to get back to a place in a serving the Lord, you just feel like you're not at a point where you are going to be able to recover from the wrong that you've done in the past, from the mess that your life has become. In Scripture, we see this throughout all of Scripture. What do we see? We see stories like David committing adultery and committing murder. Yet how did he finish his life? He was a man after God's own heart. And that's how we remember him. My middle name is David. Not because my parents didn't give me a middle name of David because David is remembered as a murderer and adulterer. They gave me the middle name David because of David having a tenderness, a tender heart toward God and how he finished his life. He too was a trophy of God's saving grace. For David, he didn't remain in a place of gross sin, but rather turned to God in humility and understood that God could cleanse him and make him an effective and faithful servant. And that can be us too. I actually have a brother whose name is John Mark. Uh, I texted him last night and I said, uh, I said I, uh, I'm preaching today on John Mark and I said I'm not going to have any illustrations about you. And his reply to me is, uh, yeah, I think mom and dad named me that because they wanted to make sure that I was going to be useful to God in ministry. And we kind of chuckled about that a little bit, just, you know, brothers or whatever. And uh, I just think that's really cool. Um, and uh, and uh, it was, you know, you, some of us have names that reflect great stories in Scripture, great illustrations in Scripture. Um, some of us don't. Uh, we decided to name our kids um, things that were relevant to us in terms of uh, particular passages of Scripture, people in Scripture that illustrated um, a particular thing, uh, because it causes us to remember. Um, and it was just, it was good to talk with my brother last night um, on, just by text, uh, talk to him about his name. Um, for a long time, before I really um, studied about John Mark, uh, I really thought of John Mark in the Bible from the point of kind of failure in ministry, as opposed to uh, somebody who is restored. And, uh, you know, John Mark, he made a lot of mistakes in his life. Like all of us do. He went so far as deserting the ministry. But you know what? He finished his life well. He finished his life for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, who penned much of the New Testament, considered John Mark as a great asset in many of his missionary endeavors. 
and this after the conflict that happened over John Mark where he didn't take John Mark with him. John Mark was even given the incredible ministry of penning the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. What an incredible story of redemption and restoration. A wasted and ruined life restored by God. And the means of that restoration was God using others, like Barnabas, Paul, a mom, to work his story of restoration. How might God be using us in other people's lives? And how might God be using other people in our lives to showcase his gospel and build his kingdom? Isn't this just an amazing story of how God uses people to influence other people in his overall story of redemption? Which is truly the overall theme of the entire scriptures. The story of redemption from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, it's all a story about being trophies of God's grace and the redemption, the amazing, wonderful story of redemption that God has for this world and the ruined, awful, messy lives that are in it, like ours. Let's constantly be mindful about how God is using people and circumstances to draw people all around the world, including us, to showcase his gospel of grace and to build his kingdom. You're probably, you may be very focused on what is happening in your life. I'm going to be focused on what's happening in my life and the struggles and trials that are happening. Try to pull yourself away from that and see the bigger picture of what God is doing. God is using that situation, that really difficult situation, maybe tragic situation that you're dealing with, and he's going to use it to bring about good and to bring about joy and to bring about peace. Maybe not right now, today, maybe not immediately, But that is what he's doing. That's what he's promised to do. So let's rejoice in struggle. Let us be motivated to serve God out of hearts of gratitude because God is working all things for good. He loves us. He loves you. Just rest in that today. I'm going to pray now, and then uh, we're going to sing a final hymn. The final hymn we're going to sing is, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. And as we sing this, let's just ask God to guide us toward hearts of faithfulness to God in our daily lives. Why? Because we have so much to be thankful for. We, because hearts of gratitude that we have as we've been trophies of God's grace because God has reached down and saved us and given us a hope that supersedes any trial 
that we could be going through today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these illustrations throughout Scripture of real-life people and circumstances in the history of the world that you have laid out for us in Scripture so that we can learn from them, draw hope from them, and we can understand the trials that we experience in a different light. Because we know that you are orchestrating everything to showcase your story of redemption throughout the history of the world and for all time in the future as well. Help us to be people of God who struggle with hope. Help us, Lord, to understand that if we are right now at a place where there is struggle, where we are ineffective, where we do have messy things happening in our lives, Lord, please restore us. Restore us to a place of effective service for you. What you're trying to do in each of us, what you're trying to do in this church is to build your kingdom. And we just ask that you would make us humble servants of you that would be able to play a part in that. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how instructive and how hopeful it is. Uh, Please just bless us, Lord, as we sing this song now. Uh, Give us hearts of uh, service toward you. Give us hearts that want Jesus Christ just to affect us in such a way that it just we can't help but to demonstrate it to the life, to the lives that are, of the people that are around us. Please, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.